How's it going, everyone? Welcome to the third episode of American Memoirs. I'm your host, Bo Gersnich, the dude cuckoo enough to spend two years reading all the U.S. presidential memoirs. And now I'm here to share some interesting stories and perspectives from my studies. I hope that you enjoy it. So today we are going to be walking through the period immediately prior to the Civil War. So we're going to be talking primarily about the decades leading up to the Civil War, the election of Abraham Lincoln, as well as the lame duck session of James Buchanan. Uh, This episode's a little special. I've got a uh, guest speaker as well, uh, my friend and cousin Mitch Christensen, who is a Civil War enthusiast and passionate fan of Lincoln as one of our most influential presidents ever. Hey, Bo. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So I think that we could start the Civil War conversation with a lot of different events. Um, Spent a lot of time reading about it. Uh, Some would say that Uh, The Civil War was kind of destined to happen from the beginning uh, when the Constitution was signed with the three-fifths compromise and kind of the inequality of uh, voting when it came to the legislator. Uh, Some will say that it it was preventable all the way up until 1861. Regardless of what you think, whether the war was destined to occur or not, we can all agree that it culminated in the most influential and bloody war in the course of American history, with 2% of the country's population dying in the war Uh, which was the highest percent of any war we've ever been in, as well as the highest body count in general. So uh, before we dive into that, the setting, the characters, the scenes of the eve of the Civil War and James Buchanan's uh, lame duck session, I'm curious, Mitch, what do you you think the genesis of the war was? I think the Civil War, the, the historian Shelby Foote, I think, said it best. He said that the Civil War solved what the Revolutionary War did not. And that was the issue of slavery. Um, it's hard to look at like 1855, 1850, the Dred Scott case, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, um, and say that those were direct inputs into the Civil War, even though they kind of fanned the flame, so to speak. But you have to go back to when this country was founded and the fact that slavery survived um, the uh, Revolutionary War and this government's nascent and origination really created a lot of issues all the way through, you know, the, the, the Jackson presidency, um, the Amistad case with John, John Quincy Adams. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of things that were going on that sometimes we forget because it wasn't directly like associated with the civil war. But if you go back and, um, a great book to study, that's also like very, uh, correlated to the civil war is John Adams's biography by David McCullough. And it talks about the complications about how these states really saw themselves as independent nations. I mean, they really did back then. It wasn't one country. This was something that Lincoln had to create and create a brand and identity around that it really still wasn't one nation. These countries didn't agree on all of these things. And slavery was a big issue. And slavery was a non-starter for South Carolina and a lot of other uh, states that were really difficult in and trying to unify around the war with Great Britain. And, you know, John Adams said all clocks must strike midnight at the same time. And that meant that they had to compromise on the issue of slavery, which let it survive and kind of just exist and subsist in in our country for uh, basically 100 years until all this stuff finally started coming to a head. Yeah. So are you familiar with the nullification crisis in the 1830s then? Yeah, I I, I read a little bit about that. It's... um, 
I read this book called American Lion about Andrew Jackson, and uh, you know that was a, a lot of the, the the John C. Calhoun days and running the Senate and things like that. Um, certainly, all those things mattered coming into the Civil War for sure. Cool, yeah. So for the readers not familiar or listeners not familiar, sorry, <laughs> with uh, the nullification crisis, it was uh, a uh, point of contention between the state of South Carolina and the uh, Jackson administration back in the 1830s, uh, where his vice president at the time, John C. Calhoun, uh, there were some tax laws that were being passed that South Carolina as a, as a state uh, basically didn't want to pay. Yeah. They were like, oh, no, these, you know, we don't want these uh, taxes to affect the South Carolina uh, population. And so we're just going to nullify it, you know, and, and that speaks to, I think, what Mitch was talking about with how the states really thought that they were uh, entirely different entities, much more than they do today, in that they thought that their power was equal to the federal government's power. Yeah, they thought that they were partners, right? And that like, if, if you're a partner in a, an organization, I can get out anytime that I want. If this is no longer profitable for me, or our values or our beliefs, then we're out. We're back to where we started back in, you know, 1770. Right. Um, and so that's where this interesting kind of constitutional ideology came in to say, no, you can't just get out. You're yeah. part of a nation, <laughs> and we're going to go to war over this right. if you try to. And they said, well, then get your army get it together, and we're, yeah. we'll, we'll meet you in Virginia. It was... Um, really unprecedented i think something that's all like when we talk about the genesis of the war too because a lot of the major players one of the interesting periods of time was um the, the uh, mexican war um, oh yeah and and what a lot of people don't realize a lot of these big influential players that served as battlefield generals all went to west point together and fought together uh in the mexican-american war which was a really interesting point in time, too, for Lincoln, who was making his political career, he was very against this war. Um, he saw it as, like, American aggression and just basically a form of early imperialism, and he was very against it, and it ruined his political career. Sure. Um, and so he was basically squashed, but the, the interesting thing is Grant, Lee, all of these people fought on the same side in the Mexican-American War, um, and this was James Polk's war of, you know, broadening the power of the United States of America. Um, Zachary Taylor was a general who later became a president that was kind of in those early years building up to the Civil War. Um, his generalship or his fame in that war promoted him to become president or popular enough to become president. So that's a really interesting period of time, too, that, that sheds a lot of context into the players. And when they say, like, when the Civil War started, it was basically brother versus brother because a lot of these people fought on the same side of the aisle and then 20 years later are, are right. killing each other. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to note that the uh, origin story of the Mexican-American War, it really does uh, culminate at the annexation of the state of Texas. Yeah. Uh, and that was a big point of contention between the slaveholding South and the North in that uh the slave states basically saw it as an opportunity to extend their influence. Um, we had more or less uh, colonized the state of Texas by sending people into the state to live there. Uh, and most of those people were coming from the South, and so they came with their, their slaves. So this war that we fought ended up extending the 
uh, presence and the, the power of the, the, the slave owners to the, the North's dismay. Yeah, and that was also a really big issue with the Kansas-Nebraska Act, right? Like, as the state started developing a presence and a footprint farther west in this country, the question became, will slavery be permissible? And sure. you got people in D.C. representing both sides of the aisle are saying, yes, it absolutely should. This means more Southern wealth if we can expand slavery there. And then you have more progressive ideology in the North saying, absolutely not. This is this is um, something that this needs to die in this country, not grow. Um, and so, you know, there was a, the, the, the classic compromise, right, which was like the states can decide, which is what. Uh, Stephen Douglas, a senator from Illinois, was the one who kind of spearheaded. Sure. Um, and that was that was a great, that was a really, really big swing, I think, in, in, in aggression and people getting really, really uh, agitated. And that kind of, um, you, know, you know, who was lingering around at that time was John Brown. Um, and they say that he was the guy that really sparked the Civil War, his, his involvement and, and what he did. And who was John Brown? John Brown was, it's hard to describe this man, right? Because he was a fanatical, like a very religious person who felt like he was literally believed, and obviously I've never spoken to this man before. But <laughs> would be he, hard to. If I did speak to him, I would assume I would walk away with him telling me that he was put on this earth to stop slavery. Okay. Like that God put him on earth to stop slavery. Um, and so... He spent a lot of time, at, you know, riling things up and, and freeing slaves. And, and he finally, he, he actually, um, he had a, a great relationship actually with Stephen, uh, Stephen Douglas. I'm um, sorry, uh, Frederick Douglas. And, you know, he was a, an abolitionist uh, African-American who, you know, freed himself more or less from the, the bonds of slavery in the South and, and, and became a really big advocate and an ally of Lincoln during the war to, yeah. you know, get get soldiers to be African-American and get units and, and have some form of rights, um, at least to begin with. But he um, he is the famous man for the event that occurred in Harper's Ferry, uh, which is a small little uh, area in West Virginia. What is West Virginia now? Back then it was those states didn't really have that delineation. Um, and he basically took over a federal area. I don't know what you'd really call it. It was like a, uh, a fort of sorts that had ammunition um, and it was none other than actually Robert E. Lee representing the federal government who came to shut it down. Mm. Um, and all of him and his his um, his uh, friends, if you will, were killed. Uh, and it sparked an unbelievable um, cause for concern in this country. You were either on one side or you were not. Um, and that's where I think we kind of start looking at the election of 1860. This kind of runs right into that as the next momentous piece because um, a lot of people threw their hat in the ring for the Republican um, uh, the Republican nomination. Yeah. And we all know what happens, but it, it's, uh, it, it's, that's where things really start getting moving. Cool. Great transition. Um, let's start talking about the election of 1860 then. Uh, so there's going to be two major uh, main characters that I'm going to give a quick bio for. Uh, those are going to be the former presidents, James Buchanan, and then Abraham Lincoln. Uh, for those who don't know, James Buchanan was a Pennsylvanian lawyer who had been playing a role in American politics for quite some time. He was uh, liked as a bit of a compromise character and came into the presidency in 1856 on two main points. Uh, the first being that on top of being a Southern sympathizer, despite coming from Pennsylvania, 
uh, as the current minister to the United Kingdom, he had been removed from the recent phrase on the South versus North. Uh, so basically, he could come in, uh, take the presidency that was uh, in a very difficult spot uh, in this middle of the 1850s and kind of play that compromising character. So uh, the second point was in that process of him being picked for that 1856 election, uh, he promised to only serve one term as the president. Uh, so he basically saw himself as kind of a stopgap measure kind of president. Uh, and people were kind of hoping that things would work themselves out in the four years he was president so that they could move on to more permanent leadership in 1860. The other main character is going to be the former president, Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was the former congressman who had gained a lot of notoriety during his run against Stephen Douglas for the Illinois Senate seat in 1858. The two had a series of debates which uh, catapulted Lincoln as a new anti-slavery figure of the day. Following his defeat in 1858, he spent time politicking for the Republican nomination, which was the new party positioning itself as the inheritor of the will of stopping slavery in the U.S. So... It's interesting, right, because you, you talk about the convention, or you think about the convention in which Lincoln threw his hat in the ring, right? He suffered a loss against Douglas. He basically served as a state senate during the Mexican War, but other than that, he had no experience. I mean, you yeah. look at a lot of people that get into elected offices and you somehow say, how are you qualified for this, right? I, and that, I think that question is accurate and fair yeah. of Lincoln when he threw his hat into the ring. Now, the way that things worked back then, there were like no primaries. Right? Like you, this all happened in a delegated room where people were throwing their votes towards all of these different uh, candidates. So Seward, Chase, Lincoln was in there. Uh, and the first one went around, Lincoln wasn't in first place, but not even by a long shot. And so their marketing campaign became, hey, if we can't be your first choice, let us be your second. Being <laughs> your second, once people start shifting votes, suddenly by the third time around or so, he suddenly finds himself winning the nomination. Right. And, and I think he probably had oh crap moment, I'm, I'm the nomination for president here. Um, he had, you know, to set the stage, right, this all took place in Chicago at a building called the Wiggum, which is actually on the river, kind of by where uh, the, the chocolate factory is now. It doesn't mm -hmm. exist anymore. And if you actually do an architecture tour, you can ask them where was it, and they can actually show you as you float right past it. Um, but Lincoln was <laughs> They at, have a little, uh, a little monument, too, in the middle oh, of the they? highway. I've yeah. actually <laughs> never seen that, but I, I, yeah. it, it, I always wonder, like, man, what... What did the city look like back then? You yeah, know, because it was we just kind of a swampy river Paved tunnel. over it with yeah. a whacker. <laughs> wow. But, um, but Lincoln was back home in uh, Springfield, right? And he sure. Was, and he was, uh, you know, he wasn't getting text messages. He wasn't getting phone calls. He was, he was getting word um, through telegrams and, and in other innovative ways back then um, to finally find out um, in the, the early mornings of, uh, you know, the, the, the next following day that he had won the nomination. And... Uh, and, you know, then he has to understand what's at stake. Um, Lincoln, his pitch to be president, and, and this is like a famous thing, right? All the, the Lincoln and Douglas debates that occurred. Uh, these were actually when he was running for Senate uh, against Douglas. But his position on human rights was, was, was pretty well known. Um, he used to do this interesting thing where he would, he would use geometry as the logical reason why slavery is bad. And he would say, if two things are not, don't look the same, such as a triangle, 
but they all add up to the same degree amount. And by ge- geometry, they say that those are true, uh-huh. right? That's a, that's a proof. That's that that is been scientifically proven that two things that don't look the same can be equal. Then why is it the same for human beings? That was his big pitch, right? So he was very intelligent. Um, he he used analogies and similes and storytelling to really connect with his audiences to understand his points and try to tap into. Um, you know, their emotional state and drive their empathy to see what he saw, which was hard to do back then, right? I mean, slavery was a political issue. Um, the country was wildly racist from just the the, the, the the introduction of the slave trade at well from, from before the revolutionary period. Uh, I mean, Great Britain, not to point fingers or anything, but they are the ones that introduced the slave trade into the United States. Mm-hmm. So, it you know, we, we kind of just... The, the United States took that and, and ran with it, and it became so out of control that uh, it became typical to kind of quell. Um, and so it's uh, it, it's really interesting to see his points on the matter. But obviously, he won that nomination, um, and that got the Southern states really into, a, into yeah. a hot and bothered state. And it's important to note that the Republican platform at the time was not to abolish slavery. Right. It was only to contain it into the states that it currently existed. So you weren't necessarily facing an existential threat, um, but just the even the concept or the thought that uh, the South was going to lose power in some way really got them frightened. And I think, too, like, is all the readings that I've done on Lincoln, he had to say that. He didn't want... That was not what he believed. I think that he always saw... And this is Thomas, Thomas Jefferson also said... Slavery is like holding a wolf by the ears. You don't like it, but you don't dare let it go. Mm. And he was totally fine when the Marquis de Lafayette came to visit Thomas Jefferson in the 1800s during his presidency. Marquis de Lafayette was very abolitionist. And he said, you guys got to abolish slavery. You got to abolish slavery. And he said, that's for the next generation to figure out. The beauty of a democracy is you vote in progressive ideas to change the course. I can't just change it right now. This country will collapse. And so he, they all saw the future as the solution, the future generations as the solution. It fell to Lincoln's lap where there was momentum to start talking about it. But I, I think he wanted to abolish it. He believed it should be abolished. But words have meaning, and he had to be careful about what he said. And that's why you hear a lot of those remarks around, we, only, we don't want to extend it. We're not saying get rid of it because that wasn't a winning platform at the time. Yeah. But there was an appetite for stopping it where it existed and not letting it grow. Sure. Cool. So Lincoln grabs the Republican nomination. And so the opposite party, which is uh, the Democrats at the time, uh, they go into convention and they are uh, incredibly divided. Uh, This was the first convention that a non-pro-slavery platform was uh, pushed or discussed. Uh, And so the Southern Democrats were uh, very angry. So uh, after 57 failed votes, which uh, Mitch was talking about earlier, uh, there wasn't primaries or anything. So it was really just uh, groups of delegations trying to decide the the future leader. They failed these votes 57 times uh, with Southern Democrats uh, leaving the convention in the process. Uh, They end up leaving the whole convention without a... uh, capability of finding who was going to lead them into the 1860 election. Yeah. So the Democrats were facing their most uh, existential threat. James Buchanan was not going to rerun uh, and they could not find a leader that they would rally around. Yeah, 
it's uh, you know that election was very interesting. I, Lincoln wasn't even on the ballot in many of those southern states, and yet he somehow still won. Um, I, I, I've actually never looked into how that was possible because you, you need some kind of uh, majority, and you would think that if, if people just don't even have the opportunity to vote for you, how do you still get it? But that's how powerful the North was. Yeah. And I think that's also how populous it was and how... Uh, how, how influential it was. And I think that's also what freaked the Southern states out, right? Like yep. they, they saw this ideology coming in to represent the entire nation as a prop to support the Northern states to totally squash the Southern states and the Southern rights, which is how this whole thing ended up culminating into a, an actual fratricidal war. Sure. So the Democratic Party splits and they proceed into two different conventions. Uh, the first being that the uh, Northern Democrats, after two additional ballots at a new convention, nominated Stephen Douglas, who was also from Illinois, uh, to be the Democratic nomination for the Northern states. Uh, and then the Southern states, who uh, basically created their own party at this point, uh, convened on their own and nominated the vice president at the time, John Breckinridge, uh, with a pro-slavery platform. So Stephen Douglas's platform at the time uh, was not nearly as uh, radical as, as what the South wanted, and so they split and went with John Breckinridge instead. Yeah, and some people say today that that war wasn't about slavery. It, it, it clearly was. It was top of mind for everybody. I think that for people that weren't really in, you know, there's there some common people, right? Hardworking families and stuff that were like, felt like they were threatened and there was an invasion and it kind of goes back to that old ideology of like, Hey, we can get out of this if we want. Yeah. Um, the, the interesting thing is that the Southern, Southern States that Breckenridge was, was stood, stood possible to represent weren't even slave owners. I mean, that was a superior class. That would be like in today's world, how many people own yachts? like the, the, the types of people that own slavery right so you or i were not slave like we, we were not what we would not be wealthy enough to be that um no we could be we, were pro- we probably would have been uh you know had, had an opinion on the matter um and, and a very uh vocal one but the majority of the people were not slaveholders at the time but yet that was such a contentious issue that they actually elected a candidate to represent and and, and hold on to which i always thought was really interesting so do you think that if the Democrats in that first convention would have been able to rally around either Douglas or Breckenridge or any candidate in general and not splinter their party, would they have had a path to beating Lincoln in the, the election? It's possible. I mean, yeah, maybe I would say yes. Uh, I've really never thought much about it just because it's, there's so much happened afterwards that we, we focus on. Um, but I do think that even the states that Lincoln represented in the North were wild, but there were a lot of people that did not want to go to war over slavery. Sure. Um, and so I do think that if, if push came to shove, they would have had a better chance. It probably would have been closer than it was. Um, but yeah, that was not a very strategic decision for those, (laughs) for those, uh, for that area of the country to to tackle. And they had to know that. I, I just think they were, they were so... They just were so strong-minded in, in what they thought, and they were so principled in certain areas back then that they, there was no compromising, you know? Yeah. 
So the election of 1860, it ended up being a very exciting time. Uh, Lenin actually has a quote where he says, there are decades where nothing happens, and then there are weeks where decades happen. I think this was a really great example of uh, when history was being written uh, very fast and and very quick. Uh, The Republican Party had gained a lot of traction and was uh, taking the place as the primary voice of the people. Mm -hmm. Uh, To what you were saying earlier, uh, the government had really been run by the yacht owners uh, for a long time. And we finally had a populist candidate who uh, people were resonating with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important to note, as you said, uh, Lincoln was not on the ballot in uh, nine states. And he still won with a plurality of the Electoral College and about 40% of the popular vote, which put him in first place for the popular vote. So he's beating people out who were on all of the ballots and uh, did have the ability to be picked, which kind of goes to show uh, if he was on the ballot in those nine states. And because a lot of those southern states, you know, they weren't for the war. They didn't own slaves. um, There was definitely a path where Lincoln could have taken even more of that uh, vote. Possibly. uh, Jumped over above 40 percent, maybe even picked up a couple more from the Electoral College. We've had elections in this country that have been, and this is a little bit of a contemporary joke as well, that have been debated. Um, this was not one <laughs> sure. of them, right? And it's, it's interesting because there's so much that has happened. And, and uh, you know, there was an election later in the 19th century where there was a backdoor deal that put somebody into president. Like, this was pretty fair and square. And, you know, history doesn't even revise the, the results of this. He, he, he was able to win fair and square with very little experience on a very progressive platform. It's actually a really interesting point in time to think about, like, yeah. you know, the, the, the likelihood of that happening um, and, and the magnitude and the, the pressure that was kind of mounting around it really made this like a crucible in our country's history. Ulysses S. Grant in his memoirs has a really good quote that I'm going to read out uh, just because I think it works really well with the conversation. Uh, Grant says... There is little doubt in my mind now that the prevailing sentiment of the South would have been opposed to secession in the 1860 and 1861 if there had been a fair and calm expression of opinion, unbiased by threats, and if the ballot of one legal voter had counted for as much as that of any other. But there was no calm discussion of the question. Demagogues, who were too old to enter the army if there should be a want, uh, others were entertaining so high an opinion of their own ability... uh, that they did not believe they could be spared from the direction of the affairs of the state in such an event, declaimed uh, vehemently and unceasingly against the North, against its aggression upon the South, its interference with Southern rights, etc., etc. They denounced the Northerners as cowards, poltroons, black worshippers, and claimed that one Southern man was equal to five Northern men in battle, that if the South would, have, uh, would stand up for its rights, the North would back down. Mr. Jefferson Davis said in a speech delivered at LaGrange, Mississippi, before the secession of that state, that he would agree to drink all the blood spilled south of the Mason-Dixon line if there should be a war. The young men who would have to do uh, the fighting in case of war believed all these statements, both in regard to the aggressiveness of the North and its cowardice. They, too, cried out for the separation of such people. 
The great bulk of the legal voters of the South were men who owned no slaves. Their homes were generally in the hills and poor country. Their facilities for educating their children, even up to the point of reading and writing, were very limited. Their interest in the contest was very meager. What there was, if there had been capable of seeing it, was with the North, they too needed emancipation. Under the old regime, they were looked down upon by those who controlled all the affairs in the interest of slave owners as poor white trash who were allowed the ballot so long as they cast it according to direction. Grant is an unbelievable historical figure that I think has been misfairly understood through the lens of history. He saved this country, in my opinion. He was an intelligent man, a, a fighting man. He understood what not only like it's hard to describe he understood what this war was about he understood clearly through that quote why the war had escalated to the point that it had but what a lot of people didn't understand on the nascent of this war was how many people were going to be impacted by it and how I mean, when i say that i mean how many people were going to die yeah because there, there was still this like romantic version of war from the napoleonic wars where everybody kind of lines up in single file and it's like it's bravado, it's romantic, and, um, you know, the statesmen show up on the hill and watch it while they picnic with their friends, which, by the way, happened at the <laughs> first Battle of Bull Run. He and General Sherman, who were the two that actually emerged from this war as, you know, number one and number two, and yep. uh, actually solidified the strategy to, to, to get Lee's surrender, um, understood that the technology had outpaced the tactics of the war and it was going to result in a lot of death. Um, and, you know, Grant grew up in a uh, very anti-slavery household. He was born with this progressive thought process. He could articulate it really well. His memoirs are unbelievably written for somebody who never actually put pen to paper on anything other than general orders. Um, and interestingly enough, he married a plantation family's daughter, Julia Grant. Her father was a Missouri slaveholder. And throughout, even through his life as president in the White House, those two butted heads, they, you know, how many in-laws can relate to that? But it was truly <laughs> like, you talk about total, op, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of families. That was, that was one of them. But he was uh, unbelievable um, in, in what he understood and what he was able to accomplish when he finally got the opportunity to do so. Um, how often do we as like just anybody listening to this that's professional like in a professional world like they have ideas and they see their leadership not asking for those ideas or they don't act on those ideas and you see them going in a different direction and you're like no this is not the right thing like Grant had to go through that for like three years in this war before he finally got the opportunity to implement what he knew was going to be effective yeah. and yes it came at a bloody cost but they finally wrapped the thing up and, and, and got the rebellion put down so he was an incredible person Probably worth his own a podcast in itself just to focus on him. Oh, I would agree. And yeah, I, I think a, a quick point to make on, on what you were saying as well is uh, people thought that the the war and the concept of war, uh, it would be very quick. People thought it yeah. would be a couple months, they'd be back. They did not think it would be years upon years of uh, being away from family and so much of the, the death that, that occurred. Uh and so I think at that time, and they were kind of riding high off of that Mexican-American war, yeah. which uh, the Americans resoundingly destroyed the, the Mexican uh, militia. So I think both the North and the South kind of thought, oh, that was because of us. Yeah. Um, 
but the reality was, you know, it was much different. It's an incredibly different beast uh, for both of them to, to try and solve. Yeah, and so, there was a difference in like the Southerners, right? Like they they had cause, like they they had propaganda that I felt like built them up into something that was more of a fighting force than the United States Union Army, right? Which went through you know they didn't even have, I mean neither of these entities had armies, right? Like they had to figure out how we're going to do that. How are we going to divide it? Yeah, who's going to lead them? Right, and nobody was equipped. Not Lincoln; he was not a military man to, to figure out how to do this. So they rely on this old general, old fuss and feathers from the, the Mexican American War to mm-hmm. say, "Here, put this, put this thing together, put this in motion, put this, make this thing go away." And he can't get it done. Um, and so this kind of then goes into as we get on in the war, the constant musical chairs of generalship that just keeps messing up, screwing up, not getting it done. Um, and there's so much dysfunction going on in the way that the war was managed from the northern side, and so many lessons learned from Lincoln's standpoint um, that prolonged this war as well. But um, it, it's it, it's certainly interesting when you think about it. Just like nobody thought, it, like you said, nobody thought it was going to be four years. People thought it would have been like squashed at the very first yeah. battle. So true. Cool. So immediately after the election. We hit the lame duck session uh, in between when Lincoln was elected and when he would take over. Uh, very quickly after uh, the election, South Carolina is the first to secede, uh, and they do so very confidently. Uh, part of me thinks that they do it so confidently because of the nullification crisis uh, from 30 years prior. Uh, at the time when they were debating their uh capabilities against the federal government, the state of South Carolina was much more divided on whether or not nullification was the route that they could go. Uh, this time around, South Carolina was uh, very rebellious. It was a, it was a state yeah. that really wanted to leave, uh, and it had a lot of uh, brethren from the rest of the South uh, who were interested in their fight, but at that time, they weren't necessarily uh, fully ready to secede yet. Uh, South South Carolina was kind of you know building the case up. For it was them. a heavy heavy situation, right? I mean, like there's a lot of unknowns with something so drastic. Um, you know, in the in the waking months into this moment, right before the secession, they actually declared it. Um, you know, there was a senator from South Carolina named Preston Brooks who actually beat over the head a senator from Massachusetts, Charles Sumner, who was giving a speech on the on the floor about slavery beat him over the head into unconsciousness with his cane. Oh, and God. people from the South, and mostly South Carolina, sent him a new cane because they <laughs> agreed with what he had done. Yeah. And yeah, that's the kind of stuff that was going on in these in these months. But it wasn't like, it was it was, it was was madness. I mean, can you imagine if we heard now, I mean, as, as, to, as split apart as we are today, even on, on a lot of issues, could you imagine, like, Lindsey Graham, Chuck up. Schumer, yeah. Beating, uh, yeah, like, you know, uh, Jim Jordan over the head with a cane. Like, I mean, there's still some, some form of civility. They, 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 they launch a lot of these, you know, anger campaigns against one another all the time. But, you know, they, they draw the line at violence, at least. So there was no stopping them back then. That's, that's how contentious and, and, and just passionate they were about that topic. Um, yeah. So these, these lame duck sessions at this time, uh, 
as opposed to now, which we have elections and uh, people take over in January, uh, the transition of power took a couple more months. Uh, so it wasn't going to be until March uh, of 1861 that Lincoln was going to take over. And so his election signified a significant change in the country. Uh, and he basically, uh, the, the country starts to unfold at this point, but he doesn't really have any capability to do anything about it. Because James Buchanan, who was uh, the president at the time, was still in charge during this lame duck session. Yeah, it's uh, an interesting time in history because I think there are two things going on. One, he was powerless, but two, I don't think he had any idea what to do. Yeah. Um, Buchanan, very, you know, as you mentioned earlier, he was a Southern sympathizer, but he was also very much just a do-nothing. Um, he didn't have a lot of motivation in the office in the four years that he was there, uh, and he let a lot of stuff just happen. And, you know, Lincoln at one point kind of observed what was happening in South Carolina and how... Fort Sumter was becoming um, uh, a target, and people were aware of this. He couldn't do anything to defend it. He couldn't really give any orders to the people manning that fort to try to fortify it or try to evacuate. Um, and he made a comment of something along the lines of, like, Buchanan should be thrown in jail um, <laughs> for, for what what is happening, you know? And so... Um, and a lot of people thought that at that time, Buchanan would spend the rest of his life uh, defending his record uh, yeah. as, as a president. I don't, you know, and I've read so many books and, and whatever, like shows and, and documentaries on this. And I don't, I don't know that I've, he kind of just drifted off into the abyss after all of this. Like, I don't even know, you know, he kind of, he said something when, when they kind of, at, at Lincoln's first inauguration where he was like, I hope you're as happy going in as I'm as happy getting out. And he literally just wanted the hell out of there. Like, and a lot of the stuff he set in motion, he kind of let it happen. And it was truly Lincoln's mess to clean up, which uh, we all know. <laughs> we all know what that turned into. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. So uh, Buchanan, because he's still in power, he classified the southern states into three categories. Uh, so the first being South Carolina, who had been advocating for disunion uh, for a quarter of a century. Uh, the second classification were the six other cotton producing states who were more in favor of compromise than session, uh, but they were uh, still more open to the idea. And then there was the third group, which was the border states, with Virginia at its head, who were sympathetic to the idea of secession, uh, but did not want personally uh, that for themselves. So uh, at that time, it basically meant Buchanan's goal uh, was to limit secession to just South Carolina and to try and convince the rest of the South to stay with the Union. Uh, in his memoirs, he claims to have planned for this, uh, not by preparing for war, but for protecting Southern-based forts as not to provoke the second and third categories of Southern states. So to your point about Fort Sumter, uh, there, uh, particularly in South Carolina, was a lot of debate over the federal forts uh, that South Carolina, after their uh, independence uh, proclamation, uh, they wanted to take them over. And there was a lot of uh, people who wanted uh, Buchanan to uh, reinforce these forts and keep them because they were federal property. And Buchanan, basically, uh, they did, he didn't abandon them, but he didn't do anything to help them either. Uh, and his reasoning was he thought that these second and third uh, groupings of states would feel more provoked. Yeah, and, and um, you know, it, 
it reminds me of the storming of the Bastille when all of these things kind of culminated into that one um, evisceration or that blast off of where things had changed, where um, the footman came into King Louis's uh, bedchamber and he woke up immediately and said, is it a rebellion? And he said, no, sire, it's a revolution. Um, that's what Fort Sumter was, you know, and it was like, oh man, everything I've done failed. I didn't realize, I thought I could prevent this. I thought I could, you know, if I just didn't provoke them, I wouldn't launch full scale and none of it was effective. And, and the unfortunate thing is, is that like Lincoln, who's by the way, you know, waiting to, to kind of ascend his presidency, disagrees with all of this. Like he's, you know, stop it, you know, put a, put, put your fist down, do something You're the federal government, don't placate this. Um, he couldn't really do anything. And, and you know, he also had a lot on the line, too, because he didn't really, he's not experienced in this. He doesn't have advisors yet. I'm not even sure if he had his whole cabinet set up yet, which, would, by the way, were all people that ran against him who also didn't necessarily feel like they were obligated to help him. They were still kind of a little uh, upset they didn't win the nomination. Yeah. Um, so he didn't have that trust going with his team yet and uh, not a lot of great advisors. So it was a really um, not a good spot for the, the representative people of the United States have, you know, two individuals who really couldn't do anything about uh, blossoming. Rebellion. Yeah. One that didn't want to, and then one that didn't have the power to. Yeah. Um, so in, in fact, at this time, the secretary of war for Buchanan, his name was John Floyd. Uh, he took a totally different approach. Uh, while Buchanan was trying to appease the South to get them to stay, Floyd had been scattering resources throughout the South in preparation for this war. So there was kind of two different mindsets. So I think there were some people who kind of knew at this time that uh, that was going to be where this was going to go. The Secretary of the War, or Secretary of War at the time, uh, was in that camp. Grant recounts, Floyd, the Secretary of War, scattered the army so much uh, that it could be captured when hostilities should commence and distributed the cannon and small arms uh, from northern arsenals throughout the south so as to be on hand when treason wanted them. Uh, and records showed at that time that he had moved over 100,000 guns into the South and that he had ordered the bolsters of the Navy in uh, several ports in the South as well. Uh, several months later, uh, Floyd would uh, go on to be uh, the brigadier general for the South, which would be the highest rank in the military. Uh, so basically, he was uh, at that time uh, in charge of the military of the Union. And within a couple months, he would be directly influencing the uh, rebellion reminds me of Benedict Arnold <laughs> from the Revolutionary <laughs> War. Yeah, I mean, imagine the foresight, right? And, and the ability to do it is just poor leadership by Buchanan. Um, you know, to you know his what what his first interests are, we'll never really know based on you know what he described and his rationale for what for his decision making. But for the ability to somebody to kind of stack the deck, if you will, in a way that promotes an advantage that he's going to walk into, meaning that he's about to switch sides anyways, and that's pro this is all probably premeditated. Um, frustrating if you're the person on the other side or somebody uh, loyal to Lincoln and the, the, the union of this country, seeing that kind of be enabled, it's got to be frustrating. Right. If you were aware of it. I mean, basically sitting back and saying, what is this guy doing? Yeah. Not only is he uh, not helping the effort, he's, you know, yeah, complicit and it's, uh, and its movement. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, but he was really banking on this, uh, this new committee that was coming out. It was called the Committee of 13, which was established in the Senate. 
uh, in between South Carolina's secession and Lincoln's inauguration to try and find peace. Uh, this committee of 13, it was made up of both parties uh, from people in the South and the North. Uh, so Buchanan was leaning heavily that this would be the way to save the Union. Mm-hmm. Was it possible? Um, there would, I, I don't think that ever, anybody really understands how committed the South were, was to war by this point. Um, there's, a, there's a really good show... I don't even know if you could find it, if you could rent it. I watched it one time. I don't know how I found it. It's called North and South. And it follows two uh, two guys that meet at West Point. They fight in the Mexican War. And then they, one's from South Carolina, one's from Pennsylvania. They okay. become generals on both sides of the aisle. Um, but one time he goes down to visit his friend in South Carolina and just sees how ready they are. Um, the, the movie Gone with the Wind, right? Like the, the, the two little... Uh, their last names like Tartable or um, the, the Tartable twins or whatever. They get all in their their gray uniforms and their saber swords and they're ready to go fight. Like I don't think anything was stopping them. And um, the, the, these these meetings and these gatherings were so inflammatory. You know, Sam Houston in Texas I think said like you misunderstand the Northerners. They live in colder climates. They will see this thing through. You guys are just being you know, spontaneous and reactionary and emotional, and this is not going to end up good for anybody in the southern states. But I think they they made their decision and they were going to see it through. There was they called it secessionitis. It was it was a disease. Like it wasn't like anything that they could be cured of. I feel like they just wanted it so bad that yeah. it was going to happen. Right, absolutely manifested it in a yeah. lot of ways. It's interesting. So at the time that this committee was meeting. Uh, South Carolina really wanted Buchanan to abandon the military forts uh, that were within their boundaries, uh, primarily Fort Sumter and Fort Moultrie. Uh, they just basically wanted to, him to hand them over to the state. They saw it as, as their right to, mm-hmm. to have those forts. Uh, in a bit of confusion, the officer uh, who was presiding over both forts abandoned uh, Fort Moultrie and condensed uh, all of his forces, ammunition, uh, everything on Fort Sumter. Buchanan was pretty upset about this. Uh, the officer was concerned, basically, that uh, South Carolina was going to attack him. Uh, so that was his reasoning. And it was later learned that Floyd had a part in this decision for which uh, Buchanan, uh, at that time, finally asked him to resign uh, after having played a part in one of the forts being abandoned within South Carolina. Yeah, I, I'm sure that's the case, you know, that... that... You know, we were talking about the the, fa- the the fratricide that happened, the brother versus brother um, situation. The um, ranking officer at Fort Sumter, his name forget, uh, forgets me, um, and the, the leading individual who was uh, tasked with overtaking Sumter were actually in the same West Point class, I think. Oh, really? Um, so he, here they are, right, in this momentous moment um, in April of 1861, and your friend that you went to college with is about to fire on you and ask for your surrender and what will become one of the most famous wars in American history. Kind of crazy to think about. Especially trying to put it into context of, uh, you know, how we operate today. Yeah. If it was just one of your own buddies from the 21st century. Yeah, uh, totally. I mean, I I can't even picture it. Um, It would be... (laughs) And, you know, they, they were military men, so it was like... It was weird, you know, that you had to put certain beliefs in, in duty above all else, which 
don't think we look at life like that anymore. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't think that. I think along the way, over the last hundred and whatever years, we've kind of established that there are other things that are more important, like family and friendships. And there's ways to get through this. It doesn't have to result in violence, although that sometimes still happens. But um, it, it's interesting. So much of that was going on. Sure. So Floyd resigns, uh, and they replace him with the Postmaster General, uh, Secretary Holt. Uh, the South, they were still teetering all on leaving, uh, and so they began negotiating with Secretary Holt to try and uh, ensure that reinforcements were not sent to Fort Sumter in an escalation of the conflict. Uh, Holt stood ground that the United States would not abandon the fort. Mm-hmm. So that February, a month before Lincoln would take over, 131 politicians in another attempt to try and find peace joined together uh, for this thing called the Peace Convention of 1861. Uh, During this time, Virginia, who was the de facto leader of the South, was urging South Carolina not to attack Fort Sumter. Uh, By then, six states had joined South Carolina in leaving the Union, uh, which left uh, four remaining states uh, who would eventually leave, uh, but were still part of the Union in that uh, Arkansas, Virginia, Tennessee, and North Carolina. So they were attempting a uh, resolution to codify them staying. Yeah, I, so what's really going on at this point in time, right, um, there are a lot of questions about what could have been done. Could you have reinforced Fort Sumter? They, they, they talked about that a lot. There were a lot of logistical challenges with doing that. Um, really what this came down to was the North did not be, want to be the first ones to fire the shot. They did not want to be the aggressors. And, and, and again, keep in mind, they don't see this as being a four-year full-arm war. They see this as a rebellion and if they fire first, other states are going to see the federal government firing on its own citizens, and they're going to take up arms and make this matter worse. Sure. So they really had no choice but to let it happen the way that it did. I don't think there was any way to prevent it. They, it was going to happen, and it had to, in their minds, it had to happen that way. The fort had to be lost by the hands of the, of, of the, the rebellion states. Um, because the, also what's going on here is that Lincoln is really, really, really trying to save the, save the state of Kentucky, who stayed neutral through all of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, a really, really strong political figure in Kentucky named Joshua Speed was one of Lincoln's really good friends from um, the, the days where he rode the circuit in Springfield. Um, and that was a very slippery slope to keep that neutral. Because if that, you know, the battles weren't allowed to be fought in Kentucky, um, you, you know, the, some did, but it was, you know, they, the, the state had to condemn it and say, you're not allowed, to, we're, we're not taking sides. You know, that was really important to the North. And if you create an instigation moment, like you fire on those people who are surrounding you, they're going to use that to, to amplify their base and, and get them all hot. You know, more people are going to accelerate their secession and it's going to, it's yeah. going to turn into a full blown affair, which at that time they were still holding on hope to could be prevented. And it's, it's interesting, too, that we focus so heavily in on Fort Sumter as uh, during this month of February uh, in Florida, which at the time was a very weak and lowly populated state, uh, they had attacked Fort Pickens, uh, which was a fort in Pensca- Pensacola, mm. uh, which was arguably the first shots of the Civil War yeah. uh, as opposed to Fort Sumter, which history really focuses in on. Yeah, um, there was a lot of stuff going on. That we, you know, it, Fort Sumter has the 
the banner as the instigation point. I think that has something to do with just how influential South Carolina was in general towards kind of instigating this this um, philosophy of, of seceding from the union and yeah. creating this this separation. Um, yeah, it, it you know it's also interesting that when we look back on the war, we think of those very pivotal figures. Uh, Robert E. Lee became this really big war horse for the South, and he strung on all these victories. But before he was actually put into that position, he was down in Florida working um, as more of like an administrative and as an engineer, like working on bridges, making sure the Army could move, and so on and so forth. Um, and so there was action going on down there. And it wasn't really until uh, this war had matured into a little while before we really got to see the namesakes that made a name for themselves as well. But yeah, there was... Um, a ton of little skirmishes going on too. It's just this one had the most notoriety to it. Sure. And so uh, through this peace conference of 1861, uh, they pass a uh, legislation called the Corwin Amendment. Uh, That was a constitutional amendment which essentially protected slave states from the federal interference. Uh, It was the last effort for compromise, uh, which ended up not passing in enough states. And so on March 4th, Lincoln was inaugurated president. And while there was really at this point no route for peace, he nonetheless advocated for it in his inauguration. Uh, Despite that, within the next month, it is Fort Sumter who is attacked and the remaining four states leave the Union, setting the stage for the most bloody and difficult conflict in American history. Yeah. um, You know, you mentioned his, um, his first inauguration speech and how he was still advocating for peace. It is one of the most interesting points in, in, in our history. Um, he, when he, when he, first off, he gave one of the most beautiful, like spontaneous speeches when he left Springfield, where he said like, this is where I've started a family. This is where I've had children and buried one. Uh, I leave to go on to fight a greater mission and I do not know if I will return. And he said it much more eloquently than I, and I don't have the speech in front of me, but he leaves knowing that he's going into, you know, he's going into an environment where he's honestly not sure he's going to make it out alive. And he knows that. And, and there are assassination attack uh, attempts that um, it's very interesting. The, uh, the secret service um, were aware of um, and Alan Pinkerton, who, Actually, it's really interesting. The Masters, the term of the Masters, still uses Pinkerton Detective Services as the security of that event. Really? He was in charge of the security of the president, making sure that he got to and from. And he actually led the investigation on um, Wilkes Booth after after he was assassinated. Okay. Um, But they pick up that there are assassination attempts, and they have to basically weave through the train routes under the cover of darkness and through disguises and things like that to get him into Washington, D.C. safely. Um, And he says in his speech, um, he mentioned something that's really important. And I think it's it's so true even in in, in today's world, right? He says something along the lines of like, the quote is about the better angels of our nature. Okay. And so he's talking about how he's not the aggressors. We must be friends. We must be family. We are one country. And at some point, we will feel differently about the thing that we are arguing about when the better angels of our nature take over and realize, right, here we are in the year 2022. We look back on what they were fighting over and we're like, could you imagine fighting over something like that? 
Like the, 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 the treatment, the imprisonment, the, the, what, what, the topic of slavery, every, you know, the better angels of our nature did take over. They abolished slavery, um, civil rights. Over time, the democracy prevailed in making improvements on something that he categorized so beautifully as the better angels of our nature, which I think is one of the most like moving speeches ever. And the people that heard it probably didn't know what the hell he was talking about. You know, <laughs> like, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. But um, he was well aware that the power of democracy and the importance of this country staying together was so that when people start to realize that this is wrong, they have the ability to pass laws to prevent it and make it better. Um, it's not going to happen overnight. It never does. But you look at 150 years, 200 years, even 100 years from now, where will we be? Will it be better? Um, I hope so. Um, and, you know, what a way to put it, you know? And, yeah. and, and he he died on that altar, right? Because of what he believed in and in so many ways. It's really a shame that we never really got to see him implement his post-war strategy because a lot of sure. issues happened with him dying and, and Andrew Johnson become president and, uh, uh, you know, the the uh, the way that they kind of implemented, implemented the, um, the, the the post-war issues and all the transcending and generational effects that that's had um, has, has been unfortunate. It's certainly one of the biggest questions in American history is if Lincoln had survived, how much different would this country look? Oh, this is like, uh, so Edward Stanton, uh, Stanton, who was the Secretary of War, um, Grant, um, they, none of them got along with Johnson. Johnson was a, I think he was from Tennessee. He was a racist. He, he did not, I don't think, you know, he politically stood by the side of abolishing slavery, but he wanted racist policies in the South and everywhere where they stood. Yeah. Uh, and he enabled the Southern states to create um, these facades of institutions that were protecting their rights, but they weren't. And, and, and we all know that what, what, what kind of happened to the upbringing of the Ku Klux Klan, all those things happened because of his policies and what he enabled um, and created tons of issues, you know, that just transcended generationally with the Jim Crow South and all those things, you know, um, could probably be tied back in one way or another to, uh, you just wonder, would it, would it have been different if Lincoln had an opportunity to implement what he had in his mind? And unfortunately, no one knew. Yeah, you no know, one. He never really described it. He never really. I, maybe he was take, taking the approach of well, one step at a time. When we get there, we'll get there. But um, it, it is sad that he was about ready to start and embark on this new journey of mending the nation, and he never got to. Yeah, I think that's a great place to end it here, Mitch. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, and, man. And talking through this. Yeah, this was this is a really good conversation. Uh, I hope that the listeners really enjoyed it. Uh, feel free to provide feedback if, if this is a good uh, format. Uh, as always, very much appreciate uh, you listening in and, and talking history. Uh, thank you very much, and I hope you all have a great day. Mitch, thank you again. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Of course.